Welcome. Good to have you here. Open our Bibles. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, please. Uh, You'll find that on page 1504 in that book rack Bible in front of you. This is how to pray. People in Jesus' day, interestingly enough, believe that there were three ways to demonstrate your devotion to God. And we have our ways of demonstrating devotion to God too, but for the people in Jesus' day, it was primarily in three areas, how you gave, how you prayed, and how you fasted. Those were ways that you showed your devotion to God. And last week, we looked at what devoted praying, or excuse me, giving looks like. Today, we're going to look at what devoted praying looks like. Now, I don't know of anyone who doesn't think their prayer life doesn't need to improve. Is that you? That's me this morning. Every believer desires, wants to know how to pray more effectively, how to engage in it more often in order to experience God's peace, his power, his provision. And, and prayer is our lifeline to God. It, it should be that, that instantaneous means of connecting with our Heavenly Father to receive help, encouragement, guidance, awareness, empowerment, affirmation, and so much more. It's truly one of God's great graces that he would invite us into his presence to pray. And therefore, prayer should be as fundamental to our spiritual life as breathing is to our physical life. But if we were to compare our praying to, uh, to our breathing this morning, maybe some of us would be wheezing a little bit. Or we'd be choking a little bit, difficulty breathing, because we don't really know how to pray. It's one of the stumbling blocks that I meet and talk with people about all the time. How do I pray? Pastor, how do I do that? If you want to put someone in shell shock, be in a group and ask somebody to pray. And sometimes they'll just want to disappear right out of the room. We've, we've made this into such a big deal when really, and it is a big deal, but the, the reality is we put so much uh, uh, emphasis on the way it comes across that we're afraid to enter in. We're afraid we might do it wrong. So let's see what Jesus has to say here in this familiar text, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Let's just do this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then Jesus says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow, that's an amazing text, isn't it? Now, it's a familiar text, and right away we recognize it with great familiarity. People all over the world have seen this section in Matthew's gospel as one of the most beautiful pictures 
and where we find some of the most powerful principles of prayer. Many of us know this prayer by heart. You said it right there with me, probably without even looking at the biblical text. It's become familiar to us. Some of us believe very strongly that this is a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Other people argue that it's actually a guide or a form from which we can learn the principles of prayer. Some people see it as both. I don't know how you see this prayer this morning, but it is a beautiful way to approach our God, and we want to learn what it really means as we jump into this this morning. What I want to show you from our teaching this morning are three simple principles that I see out of this text that will help us to pray the way Jesus wants us to pray. And this is how we're going to do this. First, we're going to look at some warnings that Jesus gives about prayer. And then we're going to dive into the actual uh, content of why we should come to God in prayer. We're going to look at a picture of who God is in this prayer. And then we're going to see some specific things that we can aim at as we pray. And my desire this morning is that all of us feel a little more excited about engaging in this thing we call prayer, this thing that Jesus called prayer, this thing that the disciples of the Lord asked Jesus to teach them how to do what we find right here in Matthew chapter 6. So the first thing we want to show or talk about is that there are some things to avoid in our prayers. There are some things to avoid. I see this in verse 5, 7, and the beginning part of verse 8, that Jesus gives two warnings here about prayer and what to stay away from. We remember we said last week that when it comes to giving, praying, and fasting, most often these things fall into or they morph into things that we try to do to impress others. Jesus is not saying that we should never be seen doing these things, but he does warn that these are the things that we shouldn't be doing in order to be seen. And in all three of those examples, in giving, praying, and fasting, the little phrase is, in order to be seen by men. That's the trigger that says, that's not the way we're to do it. So if you're taking notes, here's some things we're to avoid when it comes to praying. We should avoid praying like we are performing. Just say the word performing. And again, I show you that little, that little phrase in verse 5, in order to be seen by men. Now in this context, everyone listening to Jesus and what he had to say here knew that three times a day for the Jewish person, wherever you were, you would stop and you would pray. And it might just so happen to be that you were at the marketplace or you were out at the temple square or wherever you might have been, in those moments you would stop and everyone would enter into a time of prayer. And some people would be probably more notable with the expressions they used and the words that they chose. And there's something about praying publicly that, that sometimes changes our shift of focus from the God that we're praying to to the people that are listening around us. Our voice may change, our posture may change, the words we use may change, but God's presence isn't really changing us, it's the people who are listening to us that's changing these things in our lives. We sometimes become like actors on a stage in front of an audience so that we pray in order to be seen by others as being spiritual or godly or sensitive or whatever else. Pastors can fall into this. People who lead ministries can fall into this. Suddenly when they pray, it's as if they have a different voice, a different countenance, different words are used. I remember growing up in a little church across the bay when uh, the pastor would get up to pray, uh, it would be like everything changed in his demeanor. And then when you would talk to him personally, he was very 
uh, approachable and different expressions, but when he got into prayer, it just seemed different. Now, I'm not judging him in that. Maybe, I, maybe it sounds like I am. Maybe more of a commentary on where I was in my spiritual life, but it just didn't seem very real to me. And sometimes it's the way we pray when we're, and I'm sure I have done this. I'm careful about words that I say. I'm conscious of the fact that people may be listening around me, and I want to pray in a way that honors the Lord. But sometimes we can be so concentrating on how people interpret what we say or how we say it that we forget that we're actually praying to God. And so Jesus says, if you're going to avoid something, you need to avoid praying like you're a performer. And then he says, you should also avoid praying like you're a pagan. (laughs) Now, this is kind of interesting to me. Jesus says right there, verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. There's a way to pray like a pagan. A pagan is is a person who doesn't believe in God, really. may have idols that he worships or she worships things that they do and carry on with. Jesus says when you pray, you shouldn't be like them. And he talks about babbling, using many words, people that kind of run on and on and on and on about things in order to somehow be heard and seen. The focus of a pagan's prayer, I think, usually typifies things like the places they pray. It's critical that they pray in certain places. Or the practices which are included in prayer, such as maybe the lighting of candles or holding things or burning incense or whatever. Or on certain people that only certain people can pray. Only certain people have the weight of prayer. This is the the view of, of pagans in their prayer. I thought it would maybe be fun for us to look at what a pagan prayer meeting might look like. Do you know where that is in scripture? Let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, it's okay to use your table of contents if you'd like to. 1 Kings chapter 18. Some of you will see exactly where we're going here in just a minute. Now, this is the story of Elijah, remember? And the prophets of Baal. And there's going to be this big contest. And whose God is really God? And Elijah's God is the God Yahweh, the God over Israel, the covenant-keeping God, the everlasting God. And the Baal worshipers were worshiping uh, a cult god. They were worshiping many gods, gods of fertility, gods of the weather. They were, they were serving up all kinds of prayers to these unknown deities, this, this, this idea of a, of a pagan, idolatrous worship. And it tells us, let's pick it up in verse 26, where the, we focus in on their prayer meeting. So the Baal worshipers took the bowl given them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from, the, from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. I think the Living Translation says maybe he's in the bathroom. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, verse 28, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. That's a pagan prayer meeting. <laughs> now sometimes, sometimes you think, well, what, is a, what does a Christian prayer meeting look like? There's not franticness, there's not, we're trying to not whoop us into an emotional frenzy to somehow call out and get the attention of the gods. 
The beautiful thing about followers of Christ, people who are praying to the living God, is that we're not performing and we're not babbling and we're not trying to just get somehow the attention of this God who is distant, who is away from us, who has no desire to be with us, and certainly one who can engage in our lives, not one who, is, who, who never talks because he doesn't exist. So there's some things to avoid. And what we avoid, Jesus says, is we avoid performing and we avoid praying like pagans. The second thing that I'm going to show you in this text, back to Matthew chapter 6 now, is that there are some things to affirm. And I see this in verse 6, 8, and verse 9. And here are three things that Jesus affirms about the God to which we pray, the one that we come to. And this is beautiful. For some of us, I realize this is somewhat of a, of a review but it's a good review. This is helpful to me. I just am so thankful that we serve a God that we're about to discover here from this text. For example, verse six, Jesus says, when you pray, this is how to pray. Say, our Father in heaven. What I've written written down in my notes, I want you to, is that God is personal. What Jesus wants us to see is that our God is personal. Pray to your Father. The people of Jesus' day, when they heard Jesus say, this is how we pray, or this is how to pray, this would seem scandalous to them. It would seem scandalous because nobody used the proper name of God in prayer, much less a personal endearing name like Father. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where the, where the people of God ever address God as Father. They saw him as the Father of creation perhaps, but never would they address him as Father. They wouldn't even mention his name for fear that they might blaspheme his name. So when Jesus said, pray this way, pray our Father, first he's saying this is a collective, this is, we come together as God's people to a loving Father, we're his children. This is a beautiful picture of the fact that God is, and we'll see this, although he's transcendent, we'll see this in a few minutes, all the while he's intensely personal, he's approachable. We need not fear to come into his presence as his children. We don't have to try to get his attention by chanting or crying out or cutting ourselves and causing our blood to flow. Our God is personal. Do we come to him this way? I remember when my kids were little, they would burst into a room at times. I might be meeting with someone. I might have something going on. It wouldn't matter. If they had a need, they would just come bursting in. Daddy, I need this. Daddy, I need that. It's a beautiful thing as a parent. Sometimes it's a little bit frustrating can knock you off a little bit at times, but it's a beautiful thing because your kids know that that's my dad or that's my mom. I can go to that, that parent right now. I can get help from them because they are personal to me. They're not some distant off in the, you know, in the stratosphere somewhere. This is what I need, so they come. And it's a beautiful thing. That's what, what kids do. They come to their fathers. They come to their mothers until they reach adolescence. Then they don't do that anymore. But anyway, that's another story. He's personal. We say to God, God, I desire to come to you, so I'm here. God, thank you for initiating me into your presence, inviting me into your presence. I like what the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him, Psalm 8, 4. You see, when we realize, why would God even care? Why would God even stoop down to say, come to me, come into my presence? Why would he do that if he wasn't a God of great personableness? 
That he's not distant. Some of us right now, in a crowd this size, there are some of us who treat God as if he's unknowable, impersonal. And God is inviting us into his presence. The second thing I want to point out here about God's character and who he is, not only is he personal, but verse 6 tells me he's also present. He's also present. Write that down. Notice Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Where do we have access to God? Some people quickly say, "Uh, well, in the church. (laughs) Anywhere. But it's funny how some people think you really can't talk to God unless you're in church. Unless there's a prayer room, unless there's a sanctuary, unless there's a holy site. This is where we can connect with God, but that's not biblical because God is present. Listen, he's personal, which means he's approachable. He's present, which means he's accessible. We can come to him at any time, in any place. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. Wherever I go. There you are. So wherever we find ourselves, in a situation at work, driving down the road, in a confrontation with a neighbor, some situation on the phone, we're frustrated, right there, right then we can stop and we say, God, I need something from you. I need to hear your heart on this matter. Or Lord, I need to worship you. I need to praise your name. I need to tell you how great and awesome you are because of what I see in my life right now. He's personal. He's present. And number three, he's also perceptive. I like this in verse eight. Your father knows what you need before you ask. It's amazing that God knows what we need before we ask. Um, Some of us have taken this wrong. We say, okay, well, there you have it. Why should I pray? God already knows what I need. And, you know, logically speaking, that's an okay question. But God still invites us to pray. So the question is, why does he want us to pray? Why does he want us to come to him when he already knows what we're going to ask of him? Watch this. He wants us to know that the purpose of prayer isn't to inform him, but for him to transform us. Prayer is not an exchange where we're informing God of anything. God already knows. But when we sit in his presence, watch this, as we pray for things that don't immediately come to what we are asking for. Anybody have anything you're praying for that hasn't happened yet? Anybody? Just see if I'm the only one here. Okay, most of us. We got things we're asking God for, things that we're storming the gates of heaven for, things that we're saying, God, this has got to happen. It's got this. Why wouldn't this be your will? And we are asking and we are pleading with God. And we are sharing our hearts with God. And watch this. As there's a suspension of time between the first time we ask that and the time that God answers that, here's what God's doing in the whole time. He's transforming our hearts. He's causing us to depend on him. He's causing us to trust in him. He's causing us to persevere. He's causing his character to be built in us. He's teaching us to trust. He's teaching us to yield our will to his. This is what's beautiful about prayer. And, you know, I'm just learning this in my life. I'm, I'm almost 60 years old, and I'm still learning the beauty of unanswered prayer. 
And that is that God is using the time of unanswered prayer, watch this, to change me, to transform my life. Because prayer isn't a magic wand, it's not a good luck charm. That's why a lot of people look at prayer. That's the way pagans pray. Oh, if I just get this right, I'm going to win the lottery of prayer. I'm going to finally strike it rich. I just get just the right formula with the right place, with the right words, and maybe have the right person pray for this, and shazam! No! God says, I know what you need before you ask, but you're going to come into my presence and I'm going to teach you that you're going to depend on me, you're going to persevere through this situation till I decide when it's right to give you this. And by the way, I'm not always going to give you what you ask for because what you ask for, you will hate me for in the end. God's not always going to answer us the way we're asking because he knows what's best for us. And I can just think back in my life. I'm so glad God has not answered all my prayers the way I prayed them. (laughs) God is so rich in mercy. And yes, there are mysteries. There are things I've asked for that God did something different. And I, to this moment, I don't understand. You pray for a loved one to live and they don't live. Those are hard things. But what does God do in the midst of those things? He teaches us. He transforms us. He causes perseverance to rise up. All of these things are a beautiful picture of who God is. He's personal, he's present, and he's perceptive. And this is what Jesus is teaching us here in this text. Which brings us to the last thing. And that is that there are not only things to avoid, there are things to affirm, but now let's just take a few more minutes and let's look at some things at which to take aim. And this is where we get down into some of the nitty-gritty. And I'm going to put them into two categories. First, we're going to see in verses 9 and 10 that we should aim our prayers at God's glory. Three command four subjects that should be found in our prayers as we pray to God. Now, just listen to how you pray. Command force commands, Jesus says, this is how we pray. First, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Write this down. We focus on his honor. We focus on his honor. God is personal, he's present, he's perceptive, but he's also transcendent. He's other than us. He's holy, he's almighty. Listen to me. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the big guy in the sky. I hear people say those kinds of things and I realize they're not understanding what prayer really is. Because we're coming into the presence of an almighty, holy God whose worthiness, holiness, sovereignty should be the first thing on our hearts as we approach him in prayer. It shouldn't keep distance between us, but it should bring a holy respect to how we speak to him and what's on our hearts. Though invited, we realize that apart from the work of Jesus Christ in giving us access to the Father, we would all perish in his presence. But we, are, we have been given invitation to come through the Son, through Jesus Christ. And that's why King Solomon wrote in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, guard, this is Ecclesiastes 5, just listen to this, 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do, that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. 
Therefore, stand in awe of God. Where does that happen in your life? Where is the awe factor in your life? Is it always just flippant little prayers as you go through your day? Or do you ever get, do you ever actually get prostrate? Do you ever actually fall before him in, with no one around and just think about the fact that you are in the presence of Almighty God? Jesus says when you pray, we should learn the practice, the discipline of honoring this great king who has invited us into his presence. Not only do we focus on his honor, verse 10, we also focus on his reign. The great declaration, your kingdom come. This was seen in both the big picture of eschatology, the coming of Messiah's physical reign, his rule on earth, something every Jewish person would have hoped in his lifetime. But this is also a statement of realizing that when we pray, listen, when we pray, we are kingdom-minded we're saying, God, reign here, reign in my family, reign in my marriage, reign in my business, reign in my church, reign in this community. God, let your reign be seen. When we pray, this is the words we ought to be using, kingdom words, reigning words. This is the most practical aspect, I think, of, of this part of Jesus' model prayer where we come to the point where we say, God, I want to see your work done in this place, in my home, in my marriage. I want you to reign. God, you be reign. You, you be the one who reigns. That should come out in our prayers because we are focusing on his honor and we are focusing on his reign. And thirdly, notice verse 10b. We focus on his will. Your kingdom come, your what? Will be done. Are we asking God, Lord, show me your will on this? Or if he's shown you his will on this, are we saying, God, give me the strength to carry out your will? Our prayers should reflect that God is the one who tells us how to live our lives and we should submit our lives to doing it. You know you're maturing in your prayer life when you say something like this, God, I, I know what I'd like to do right now but I don't think that's what you want me to do. So Lord, I'm gonna do what you want. Remember when Jesus was in the garden in Matthew 26, 42, and it says that there he prayed before his heavenly father and he said, Lord, if it be, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know you're maturing in your prayer life when you stop saying the things like, gimme, gimme, gimme. And you say, Lord, I know what you want. I don't want to do that, Lord. Everything in my spirit says, I don't want to do this. But Lord, it's your will that I must submit, submit my life to. That's maturing in prayer. And what I've found in my own life enough times and in the lives of those that I oftentimes spend hours and hours in pastoral help, counseling, whatever, with people, is that this, this is the crux of the matter. I know what God wants me to do, I just don't want to do it. <laughs> well, thank you. You could have saved me like six hours of talking about this. <laughs> because what it really comes down to is you either want to do God's will or you don't. And 
and I get it. There's a struggle in doing God's will. But are you saying, God, your will be done in this? So, Lord, even if I'm in a struggling marriage, God, I know you have a desire for this marriage to work out, so I'm going to do your will? I'm not just going to bolt out of this marriage? Or I'm in a relationship with a friend who we keep tripping over each other and, and they're making me mad and I'm sure I've made them mad and, and forget them and, and be unreconciled in relationships, seething and hating one another, even in the body of Christ, where God says, when you pray, your will be done, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We aim our prayers at God's glory. And we do that, watch this, by saying, God, you reign, your will should be done, and you are worthy of honor. You are high and worthy of honor. Secondly, we aim our prayers at God's, not only his glory, but at at his generosity. Some practical things here. This is where most of us begin in our prayers, by the way. Ask for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that great? It's a beautiful picture of God providing for us. This is usually where we start. Most of us start, okay, it's time to pray. Lord, I need this. I need that. I need. We go right down this grocery list. Jesus was teaching his disciples, start with honor. Start with the honor of God, the glory of God, how great God is, that it's his will, his kingdom. That's where our consumption, our focus ought to be. Now, as we've gotten that straight in our minds, God is supreme. He's sovereign. He's over all things. Now, now, what is the request? What do we need from God? And by the way, did you notice he says uh, our, uh, our daily bread? What is, what is it that we need, not what is it that we want? We all have lots of wants in our lives. But Jesus says, bring us, bring me, Jesus says, your needs. He loves us. He invites us to come. He's interested in being a part of the provision of our lives. Whatever we need, he loves to give those things. He loves to provide us with those things. And you know, it's nice just to thank God for his provision too. You know, we have this little habit, we pray over meals. You don't have to pray over meals, but I think it's good to be reminded that God provided the food. It's okay. Don't be legalistic about it. You don't have to pray. You don't have to do it in public. Do it quietly if you want, but just are you, this is a need that I have. When you get into your car, Lord, thank you for this automobile. Thank you, Lord. When you pick it up from the shop, thank you, Lord, that I just paid $3,000 for an oil change. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I don't know. I'm be thankful for the things that God gives to you, all the things. I just, I'm just so, so blessed. I am overblessed. I am wallowing in blessings. The things that I complain about, the things that frustrate me are all around me, just blessings from God. And he says, give us this day, our daily bread. We need provision. We can ask for it. Secondly, we ask for pardon. Verse 12, 14 and 15. This is huge. Not only do we need daily provision, but we need daily pardon because we mess up so often. Many times each day our hearts just betray how lazy and how rebellious we are. We are carried off into actions and attitudes that don't display God's transformative work in our hearts. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't see this. We're we're all miserable failures. (laughs) And God knows that. 
And so he says, when you pray, we should pray and forgive us our debts. As we, or in the same way that we are forgiving those who have transgressed against us. And Augustine called this the terrible petition. Because we usually leave that part out. Lord, forgive us our debts and really get back at those people, Lord, that have done us wrong. That's kind of the prayer we pray. But Jesus says, pray this way. Pray, forgive us our debts as or in the same way that we are forgiving others. It's like Jesus says, wait a minute. As you're coming for pardon, which you should every single day. And by the way, let's, not, let's clear this up theologically. We are forgiven past, present, and future when we come to know Christ. There is no sin hanging over us, no judgment hanging over us. But when we confess our sins, it's an acknowledgement of that we have gone our own way. We're doing our own thing. And that's a reminder to us that we need a God. Otherwise, it's all entitlement, and I can just live any way I want to live. But we live humble lives because we realize that we are debtors to the one true God. And in his amazing, unlimited forgiveness toward us, we are reminded to forgive others in the same way as we ourselves have been forgiven. This is a picture of God's grace through us and over others. Did you see in the CBS News story recently an extraordinary story of forgiveness? Ricky Jackson spent 39 years in prison on death row for a murder he didn't commit. You saw this just recently in the last few weeks. He was only 18 when he was misidentified by a witness. At the time, a 12-year-old named Edward, Edward Vernon, who identified him as the murderer. Vernon now claims that he was pressured to make the identification, although he saw nothing at the time. Finally, with the help of his pastor, Vernon came forward. The Ohio Innocence Project got a new trial, and Vernon had the opportunity to tell the whole truth. Jackson was released. And I saw that on the news. You did too. Being released was not enough for Jackson. Jackson wanted to forgive the man whose testimony had put him behind bars. When they met, they both dissolved into tears. Can you imagine what that moment was like? Jackson admitted that for many years he had hated Vernon, but went on to say that the only way he could move forward in his life was to forgive. Now, that guy understands what Jesus was teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. Forgiven the same way that we have been forgiven. 39 years in prison, how would you be in your attitude? And his concern was to look this man in the face and say, I forgive you. Well, there's people that have wronged us, people that have done things to us, against us. And some of us are holding those things in our hearts and we just, we've decided, you know, we're gonna just take that all the way to the grave. You know, and I think what Jesus is, is stirring at here is that, no, 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 no. There's still time. If you're breathing today, there's still time to, to reconcile or attempt reconciliation, which begins with the mandate of forgiveness. Reconciliation isn't always possible, but forgiveness is commanded. This is what we are called to be. And lastly, we ask for protection, verse 13. 
We need provision, we need pardon, we need protection. This is a reminder that our prayers should always be about the spiritual battles we face each and every day. The word temptation here is a word that can also be translated trials. We know that testings will come. Some of us are discouraged today because of the testings that are coming to our lives. But we forget that we are in a spiritual battle. Anybody feeling it this morning? A spiritual battle that takes the circumstances of our lives and turns them up oftentimes as an indictment on the one who created us and loves us. And we blame God for the stuff that's going on in our lives. There's a spiritual battle that's happening in every one of our lives today, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you don't see it happening because the devil is so clever, he wants you to get tricked into all kinds of other things to get your eyes and focus off the fact that there is a God who loves you that wants to break through the darkness of your life and give you light and hope and encouragement even in the darkest moments of life. And so Jesus, when he prays, he says to teach us this way, to lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. There is a battle that rages today in each and every one of our lives. So, I know this is just a a little bit of a flyover today. But hopefully this stirs us up into becoming men and women that take prayer seriously and recognize that it's not a religious form that I do, but it's access to a God who loves me, who's created me, and wants relationship with me in a moment-by-moment daily basis where I can pray throughout my day. My day begins with prayer and it continues in prayer and it ends with prayer. My, my first thoughts in the morning should be upward to God. My last thoughts in the evening should be upward to God. I should be starting my day, living my day, and ending my day each day with a conscious awareness that God is involved, he's engaged, he's working, I'm needing him, I'm trusting him, I'm calling out for things. I look for his glory. I ask for his reign. I commit myself to his will. I give him my needs. I cry out for the provisions that he gives to me in thanksgiving and praise. I ask for protection and I ask for pardon. And these are beautiful ways that Jesus said this is how to pray. So, let's do it, huh? Let's be a part of this. Where's prayer in our lives? Oh, so much more could be said. Well, I hope you'll pick up, maybe if you would, to pick up that little series, track with us a little bit more. There's so much here. Or maybe start with going, being a part of the prayer force. Let's pray.